I'm Jessica Harris, and welcome to my welcome table. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burned spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthot linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come, join me at my welcome table. Hi, my name's Mitzi Pratt, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I am Patrick Dunn, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Nathan Drews, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is John Barkley, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Anne McBride, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I am Nena Leviai, and I'm with my friend Jessica, who is my sister, at the welcome table. Ladies and gentlemen, you are the cherries, and your friends are at 011, operating in cooperation with Delta 8557 to buy some of the gold. It's already for morning. Compass point, 49.51 degrees north, 2.21 degrees east, Paris, France. I'm not sure just where the picture is, probably in some dust-covered album under the piano or tucked away in a book somewhere, but I remember it as though it were yesterday. I'm dressed in a red tweed suit with a black fur collar and there's a floppy felt hat atop my newly done hair. Black leather gloves and high heels complete the picture. I guess I'm looking what passed for sophisticated in 1966, but with the hindsight of almost 50 years, I realize that my eyes betray the feeling of apprehension that I must have felt. The picture was taken in the departure lounge at the then newly named John F. Kennedy Airport, and I was heading off into the unknown to spend my junior year of college in Paris. I'd been to the City of Lights once before with my parents and loved the oldness of the place. I loved the buildings, even before the grime was cleaned off to reveal the warm, golden hues that we see today. I loved the way people seemed to have of honoring the past and the fact that they spoke another language, one that I'd almost mastered. I didn't know it then, but I'd been marked for France since birth. From pre-K onward, my parents had sent me to the UN school where I learned Frère Jacques along with Row, Row, Row Your Boat 
and started learning what was still the language of diplomacy in kindergarten. By the time the photograph was taken, I'd become fairly fluent and a first-class Francophile. I'm still not quite sure how I managed it, but after arrival, I got my numerous pieces of luggage through customs and into a taxi and myself off to 37 Rue Gay-Lussac in the Latin Quarter, where I'd stay for my first few months in the city. The rest fades into a blur where food becomes a hallmark of my Parisian experience. During my time there in that year, food provided many of my benchmarks. In my new neighborhood, I ate my way from the paper napkin that was given to tourists and transients to a cloth napkin, sign of a frequent diner at a local restaurant. I visited assiduously, as to me, that cloth napkin was a tangible sign of my bonding with the city. After each meal, it was deposited in its cubbyhole to be retrieved at the next meal, and it was laundered weekly to begin the routine again. I studied in cafes and learned about Diablo Mont, mint syrup and fizzy water, Diablo Cassis, black currant syrup and more fizzy water, and citron pressé, lemonade, French style, and I could tell anyone where the best croque-monsieur could be located in the 5th arrondissement. I got up before dawn to trek to Les Halles to see the porters haul sides of beef and heavy crates of vegetables and had the obligatory bowl of onion soup and the grilled pig's foot that tasted nothing like the boiled ones my mother fixed back home. The stomach of Paris, as Zola called it, is long gone, moved to Rangis and beyond, but the memory of the dawn trek back home before the first metro is one that I share with other Parisian old-timers. I would later move in with a family in the oh-so-very-fancy 16th arrondissement and there make friends that have lasted me my lifetime. I would head off every Sunday with my French father to the Marché de Neuilly and from him learn to thump Cavaillon melons with the best of them, pinch lettuce, peek under fish gills, shake my head with a Gallic no, 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 when unimpressed by the produce. Most importantly... I learned to eat garlic in all forms. In short, I became a Parisian in everything but passport. Sous le ciel de Paris s'envole une chanson. Elle est née d'aujourd'hui dans le cœur d'un garçon. Sous le ciel de Paris marchent les amoureux. Leur bonheur se construit sur un pour eux, sur le pont de Since then, Paris has been a beacon to me, a cultural true north that provides a quirky counterpoint to the African side of my being and often astounds people. My Paris has morphed over the 50 years I claimed it, and I find myself shaking my head with older Parisians and decrying the Starbucks that have popped up and the proliferation of American restaurants. Now, I watch American expat retirees and young students stake claims to the city with more than a twinge of envy. I visit my city almost annually and find that when I'm in need of clarity, I head there. I've often said, scratch a foodie of a certain age and you will almost certainly find France at the core. That's certainly true for me. La Ville Lumière is where my food stars aligned for the first time 
and it will always be one of my culinary touchstones. Over the years, I've made loads of friends, both French and from all over the world, and we've dined in restaurants throughout the city. I'm Wolanda Val, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. Voila. One fabulous restaurant in Paris. The name is the Cellar, C-E-L-L-A-R, the Cellar restaurant. The food is exquisite. But also, there was a special thing, a very old lady, maybe 90 or 92 years old, she's always having her lunch in this restaurant, and she's the mascot. She's the mascot of the restaurant. Very few of them are American, and none is more connected with the world of food and restaurants in Paris than one of my newest Parisian friends, Wendy Lin. An American in Paris, she's made it in the French food world and has been hailed by travel and leisure as being, and I quote, on a first-name basis with every it chef in Paris. Wendy's The Parisian Kitchen online newsletter keeps me and anyone who wants to know what's up in the world of Parisian restaurants up to the nanosecond. Doing a restaurant crawl with Wendy is perfect bliss. That can be had by all, for price, match. After all, it is her business. Uh, my name is Wendy Lynn, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. Welcome, Wendy. How are you? I'm fantastic. Merci beaucoup. De rien. It's wonderful being able to connect with you because I know that you can tell anyone who's listening what is in, what is hot, what is happening in Paris. What are your top three spots right now? And I know you've got so many, but just... Top three restaurants in Paris that you would say people should not miss? Uh, let's see. We'll start with classic. It's the Bistro Paul Bear. Uh, it looks like Paul Bert. It looks like a Parisian postcard of what you think a bistro would be. Uh, the second place would be Restaurant Frenchie, which is over at the top of the Rue Montaguay. It's 18 chairs. Uh, they get about 350 phone calls an hour. It's probably the hardest to secure reservation in Paris. But it's modern New York twist on French classics. And then my third favorite restaurant is Restaurant Spring with Chef Daniel Rose. He's actually an American from Chicago, and he's probably the second hardest table in town to get, which is contemporary small plate menu. Wow. Well, I know that you can get into all of them, so I hope you will take me there the next time I'm in Paris. <laughs> you can count on it. I love heading off to visit new spots, both upscale and down market with Wendy, with other folks, and even solo. But for me... French food is also about the city's fantastic markets. I love the old-fashioned Rue Mouffetard that I knew before it became a photographer's cliché, and I still delight in the surprise of coming across the Marché de Bussy amidst the boutiques of the chic 6th arrondissement. The Marché Bio, or organic market at La Motte Piquet, is a delight and always reminds me of my friend, the late Mama Doucy, who was my dining buddy for decades. He lived nearby. Off the beaten track, I love the exoticism of the markets in the peripheral neighborhoods where maguez and mint tea from Morocco and stinky gedge netetou and yet from Senegal 
are the market norms, not the exceptions. No matter what the market, I savor the liveliness that is part of the world of outdoor markets, where time seems suspended and we rediscover our connections with the food that nourishes us. I love the seasonality of them and the ebb and flow of foodstuffs as the calendar changes. I revel in the cacophony of them and the babble of languages that indicate commerce. I like the regional specialties that I find as well. Lemon verbena teas and lavender from the south, sausages from the east, and cheese mild and pungent from virtually everywhere. I also try to find a braid or two of garlic to hang in my kitchen. Now, I grew up in a garlic-free household. My father couldn't abide the odor of garlic cooking, and so it was, quite simply, banned. My epiphany with the stinking weed came after my market crawls through the Marché de Neuilly with Monsieur Breteuil, my French father, when he would retreat to the kitchen and prepare champignons à l'ail, mushrooms sautéed in butter with copious amounts of garlic. I now am guaranteed to keep vampires at bay at all times, for I consume massive quantities of garlic and delight in the pungency that it adds to marinades. I lob off tops of entire heads and roast them with my chicken and pulverize cloves into a mash and add them to salad dressings, and I'm always on the lookout for new ways to use the plump little cloves. I guess I'm just making up for those childhood years. But in my research, I was thrilled to find out that although it probably originates in the Middle East, garlic also turns up on the African continent early on and is found in Egyptian tomb paintings. They even found clay models of garlic bulbs in King Tut's tomb. The stink of garlic is probably why it was considered to ward off evil by the ancient Greeks. Theophrastus says that it was left atop piles of stones on the roads as food for Hecate, the Greco-Roman goddess who is variously associated with crossroads, gates, and other entrances, childbirth, the wilderness, the restless dead, healing, poisonous plants, magic, and witchcraft. She did a lot of stuff. Ropes of it are also hung at the entrances to shops in today's India to keep out evil as well. Garlic cloves are used as a remedy for infections, especially chest problems, digestive disorders, and fungal infections such as thrush, and we all know about its vampire-repelling properties. Despite my youthful deprivation, I am a now firm believer in the Eastern European adage that states that garlic is as good as ten mothers. And I look for it in the outdoor markets. But while I love outdoor markets, the restocking of my French larder that takes place on any trip to the capital also necessitates some packaged goods and other items. I head straight to the Monoprix, France's equivalent of the late and by me much lamented five and ten cent stores, and start collecting. Canned foie gras and saucisson sec? Check. Pot scrubbers and cleaning wax to polish the kitchen table? Check. The heavy-duty rough woven cleaning rags known as serpierre? Check. For more exotic items, I head off to La Grande Épicerie, an offshoot of the Left Bank's only department store, Au Beau Marché. It is to Paris what Harrods food courts are to London. But for truly exotic items, it's off across the river to the right bank for Hedyard. Now, Fauchon may be the beacon for most folks with its lovely pink-wrapped boxes and wide variety of items, but the contrarian in me knows that it really is all about Hedyard. I love the history of the place that dates back to 1850. 
Fernand Hedyard became interested in the world of imported foods at an early age when he discovered at the port of Le Havre all kinds of cargo from Martinique, Haiti, Guadeloupe, and the Lesser Antilles, all part of the French colonial empire at that time. Fired with the mission of introducing the French to food wonders, he opened his first store at the age of 23 in 1850. By 1854, he opened a larger store, which he called Comptoir d'Épices et des Colonies, a trading post for spices and products for the colonies. In effect, it was the first French grocery store. He imported island commodities such as rum, cacao, coffee, bananas, and other tropical fruits, and made them all available to a public. As the French Empire expanded, Hedyau's business grew. He made a big splash, exhibiting the pride of his imports at the 1867 Paris World's Fair. And in 1880, he opened yet another store in Paris, much more fully realized than the first. It was located, and still is, at 21 Place de la Madeleine, and it is there that I stock up on spices and teas. But honestly, I do my real damage at the candy counter. Porter des bonbons Parce que les fleurs C'est périssable Puis les bonbons C'est tellement bon Bien que les fleurs Soient plus présentables Here's my secret I dote on the pâte de fruits From Ediard Small squares of fruit paste Covered with sugar crystals They have enchanted me for decades and when I stock up, I make a major dent in the store's offerings. My favorites are passion fruit, grapefruit, and ginger lime. But recently they've added some new versions that include herbs and more in the meltingly chewy bites. I lurk in Parisian candy stores, and I've also discovered a new shop on the Rue de Rennes that prepares fondant that takes me back to my childhood and reminds me of holidays past. Like the pâte de fruits, they're heavy. Like, in fact, just about everything else that I bring back from Paris. But they're not as heavy as the books that I stock up on as well. Now, I've spent the past 10 years staying in the same hotel, in the same room. And so the streets around the Hotel des Saint-Pierre have become my stomping ground. I couldn't have landed in a better spot. Quand doucement tu te penches En murmurant ces dimanches Si nous allions en banlieue faire un tour sous le ciel bleu des beaux jours, mille projets nous attirent, mais dans un même sourire, nous refaisons le trajet simple et doux de nos premiers rendez-vous sur les quais du vieux Paris. The quays may beckon and I'm there in minutes after prying myself away from some of the most enticing shop windows in the world. I can take a leisurely stroll and browse in the green boxes of the quayside bouquiniste looking for old cookbooks or perhaps a menu from a first communion luncheon or a wedding anniversary party long forgotten. I might even be lucky enough to find one of the antique postcards of French colonial foodways that I collect. I can walk to the Musée d'Orsay 
to savor the Toulouse-Lautrecs and the new installations, cross to the Musée des Arts Décoratifs and stroll through period rooms, hyperventilate on the showcases displaying antique jewelry, or simply delight in the exhibits, including things like the recent one on Jean-Paul Goud's mad fashion. Je vous parle d'un temps que les moins de 20 ans ne peuvent pas connaître. Mon marque en ce temps-là, accroché ces lilas jusque sous nos fenêtres et si l'humble garni qui nous servait de nid ne payait pas de mine. C'est là qu'on s'est connu, moi qui criais famine et toi qui posais nu. I have only to stumble out of my hotel door to be at the hub of French Bohemia, haunted by the ghosts of Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, and Juliette Greco. There, the Café de Flore or the De Magot offer a spot to sit, order a demi of beer or a ballon or two of vin rouge, and people watch. Now, actually, that's not true. The Café Flore claimed me decades ago, and I can't even think of the last time that I sat at the De Magot. La Une and Alécume des Pages on the Boulevard Saint-Germain nearby are my two favorite bookstores for stocking up. I get my cookbooks and the BD, Bande dessinée or adult French comic books that I crave like popcorn and have been buying before they got dignified with the term graphic novels at La Une. And my books on fashion history and antiques along with French bestsellers at the other. Soon though, it's time to get ready for dinner. And I never leave my hotel without first a glass of bubbly from the lobby bar. Stop it! The history of Champagne has seen the wine evolve from being a pale, pinkish, still wine to the sparkling beverage now associated with the region. Champagne, as we know it, goes back to the French wars of religion. The Benedictine Abbey at Hautevilliers was destroyed by those conflicts. It was rebuilt and replanted its vineyards. By 1661, that abbey had 25 acres of vineyards and was also receiving tithes of grapes from nearby villages. The abbot commissioned the construction of a cellar and sought to hire a treasurer and a cellar master to help develop the abbey's growing winemaking operation. In 1668, Pierre Perignon was appointed to the position. Don Perignon set out to develop precise techniques to limit the likelihood of this fault that kept occurring in the process but he also became one of the first to work with a sparkling wine that would become what we now know as champagne. But my Paris is more than bubbly and bistros, garlic and gastronomy. It's also a lively city that culinarily reflects the colonial exploits of the French. Vietnamese food, 
the taste of sub-Saharan Africa and those of the Maghreb are also on my menus around the city. I've had mint tea in a cafe filled with men and smoke. Now seriously, I mean, I was the only woman. This cafe could have been transported from Marrakesh or Tunis without missing a beat. I make a point of being in Paris every January 18th to celebrate my mother's love for things French, and my close friends know that on that evening, they can join me for dinner and watch me lifting the conical terracotta live of a tagine of chicken with olives and preserved lemons at Mansouria, my favorite Moroccan restaurant in the city. It's run by my non-English speaking friend, Fatima Hal. My name is Fatima Al, and I am sitting at the welcome table. Mansouria is named for her mother. Along with our love for our mothers, Fatima and I also share a love of food history and culinary anthropology, and bonded years ago over tales of the Moroccan dada or traditional cooks, whose household roles almost parallel those of the southern mammy cooks. She and I have remained fast friends ever since. If I celebrate my mother's love for things French at Mansouria, my other obligatory French meal is a choucroute garni. Ça sent la bière de Londres à Berlin. Ça sent la bière Dieu qu'on est bien. Ça sent la bière. I saw my first full-out choucroute at the Place de la République in a brasserie when I was too poor to afford it for anything other than my end-of-trip treat. Later, at graduate school in Nancy, in Lorraine, near the German border, I learned to delight in the tart, savory sauerkraut filled with sausages and assorted pig parts. And now it has become a talisman of my Parisian trips. And at least one of my choucroute must be had at the world-famous uber-chic Brasserie Lip. The Brasserie Lip has been serving its left-bank clientele Alsatian delicacies and blonde beer since 1880 when Leonard Lip left his native Alsace to set up on the Boulevard Saint-Germain. But don't try phoning for a table. They won't reserve one unless you are the Prime Minister of France. Like everyone else, you will have to stand around and wait. It's part of the Lip ritual. If you are told that there is a 20-minute wait, Stick around. You can pretty much be guaranteed that you'll be directed to your table at the correct time. If, however, they tell you to wait for an hour, followed by the phrase, au moins, the honorable thing to do is just leave without a fuss. When you do get in, you have a good chance of eating next to the many celebrities who frequent Lip. Marcel Proust used to send for jugs of the Alsatian beer. Hemingway wrote his pre-war dispatches from here. And in the 50s, Chagall, Camus, Genet, François Sagan, and Simon Signoret with Yves Montand were all regular habitués of the famous establishment. Seating is a pavan of highly calibrated positioning that the French call placement. Who sits where? Who is banished to the upstairs Siberia? Who can reserve? And more. It's all controlled by the masterful maître d'hôtel with twinkling blue eyes, who is the gatekeeper to this gastronomic paradise. 
An overflowing platter of choucroute, a good half bottle of Riesling or an Alsatian Pinot Noir, a morsel or two of reeking cheese with a glass of good Bordeaux, and perhaps a ballon of fine cognac to finish it off. And my liver tells me it's time to head off to catch my plane. But I'll be back, because while I'm American by passport, I know in the marrow of my bones and the pit of my overfilled stomach that part of my soul lives in Paris. Every time I look down on my timeless town, whether blue or gray be her skies, whether loud be her cheers, or whether soft be her tears, more and more do I realize I love Paris in the springtime. I love Paris in the winter when it drizzles. I love Paris in the summer when it sizzles. I love Paris every moment. Every moment of the year. I love Paris. Why? Why do I love Paris? Because my love is near. Until next time, remember. Keep muscling good and greasy when I'm gone, gone, gone. Muscling good and greasy when I'm gone. Keep muscling good and greasy when I'm gone, gone, gone. Keep muscling good and greasy.